The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 16, Of Good Works, Paragraph 3 and 4. Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ, and that they may be enabled thereunto, besides the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Yet are they not hereupon to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty, unless upon a special motion of the Spirit, but they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. Paragraph 4. They who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life are so far from being able to supererogate and to do more than God requires as that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. As we continue through chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession, we have heard that good works are those that are commanded by God and his word. We are not bound to do the things that man thinks might be pleasing to God. We are bound to do what God says to us in the scriptures. And good works are an evidence of a true and lively faith, and they have a good purpose in our lives. They strengthen our assurance, they build up our brothers and sisters in the faith, they adorn the gospel message, and they challenge outsiders. And as we move into paragraph 3, we're delighted to hear it, because paragraph 3 is good news for anyone who has ever tried to make and keep a New Year's resolution. Paragraph 3 is good news for anyone who has ever made a promise and then fallen flat in their face as they've tried to keep that promise. Paragraph 3 begins by telling us that our ability to do good works is not at all of ourselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. And so as we begin today's episode, we pause here for a moment, giving thanks to God for this good truth. The Lord does not save us and then send us on our merry way, fully dependent on our own strength and our own ability to live lives of obedience. We have been saved and washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, and we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who dwells within us. And so our ability to do anything that is good in the sight of God does not belong to us, but comes wholly from the Spirit of Christ. Or in other words, we do good works because the Spirit has renewed us and produces fruit in us. It is as Jesus says in John 15 and verses 4 to 5, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, 
neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, says Jesus, you are the branches, and whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we have no ability to do anything that is good in the sight of Almighty God. And we are thankful for this truth. A radical shift has occurred in the lives of believers. We are redeemed, we are saved, we are a new creation, and we have been given new hearts. It is as the Lord says in Ezekiel 36 and verses 26 to 27, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, says the Lord, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is incredibly good news, that our ability to do good works is not at all of ourselves, but wholly from the spirit of Christ. We have not been left high and dry. We have not been urged to get on with it. The Lord is not like a father who runs along with us for a moment as we try to figure out how to ride our bike and then eventually lets us go and we are left to our own devices. Any ability that we have to do good in God's sight comes from the Spirit of Christ who has been gifted to us. And in addition to this, the Westminster Divines continue by telling us that just as any ability to do good works comes from the Spirit of Christ at work in us, we also need the influence of the very same Spirit to work in us, to will and to do of God's good pleasure. And so without the Holy Spirit at work in us, we would lack any ability to do good in the sight of God. And without the Spirit's influence, we would never ever do anything that is good in the sight of God. The Spirit's influence is absolutely necessary. As we read in Philippians 2 and verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then later in Philippians 4 and verse 13, Paul is able to say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Indeed, we could also say that we can do nothing without him who strengthens me. Our sufficiency is, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 5, from God. We are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. I think there is both a comfort here and a certainty. The comfort comes when we understand that the work of sanctification is not all on us. I suspect probably most of us would consider our Christian lives and see a lot of missed opportunities. A lot of times that we did not want to do the things of God. We had no love for his people, for his word. Prayer was something that we wanted to leave to others. No doubt there have been moments in our Christian walk where we have experienced times of dryness like this. And yet the comfort comes when we realise that the good works that we are involved in are not dependent upon our mood swings, not dependent on whether we are being good as Christians or bad as Christians, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. We are enabled by him and we are influenced by him to do the good works that are commanded in the word of God and are pleasing to him. So we are comforted that the work of sanctification is not wholly dependent upon us. But there's also great certainty here. If our sanctification, if our growth in good works is not all on us, but if we are enabled and influenced to do good works by the Holy Spirit, then he will not fail. It is certain. 
just as we have been sanctified and are being sanctified, we will be sanctified. The one who has begun the good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. The Spirit's involvement in our good works brings us both comfort and certainty. And yet, as paragraph 3 closes, the Westminster Divines strike a note of caution. They've correctly asserted the Spirit's involvement in our good works, and now they underline the fact that you and I are not to grow negligent. Just because the Holy Spirit is at work doesn't mean that we can sit back and say, I don't need to do anything unless I am specially directed by the Holy Spirit. The divines write that we are not to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit. But we, say the divines, ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in us. And we see similar exhortations throughout the scriptures. In Philippians 2 and verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And in Hebrews 6 and 11 to 12, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And Peter urges us in his second letter, chapter 1 and verse 5, to make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And in Jude 1, 20 to 21, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. And so as we hear these exhortations, we remind ourselves again how we are saved. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We remind ourselves of the role that our good works have. It is, as Martin Luther says, our works do not generate righteousness, rather our righteousness in Christ generates good works. No one here is saying that we are saved by our good works, that we are justified by our good works. That is simply not true. But as we have received the Holy Spirit, who enables us and influences us towards good works, so too we are to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in us. We have been given the word of God. We have been given the gift of prayer. We have been given the sacraments and the fellowship. We are to attend to these things and to make use of these things. We are to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in us. And therefore, enabled and influenced by the Holy Spirit and stirred up by the ordinary means of grace, we will find ourselves more and more involved in the good works commanded by God in his word. And so if paragraph 3 shows us the Spirit's involvement in our good works and gives us a warning against laziness, I believe paragraph 4 lifts our eyes and sets them firmly again on Christ. Paragraph 4 begins by describing a wonderfully obedient believer. An individual who, in their obedience, has attained to the greatest height which is possible in this life. Perhaps there are individuals that you know who you would describe in this way. Men and women whose Christian faith seems so vital and so alive. 
men and women who rarely seem to struggle, who pray like you imagine the apostles used to, and who any time they take a trip on the bus, they evangelise everyone around them. You and I are not like that, I am sure we would agree. But if we are tempted to despair as we survey the lives of the super obedient around us, this paragraph tells us that even such individuals as those are so far from being able to supererogate and to do more than God requires that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. Or in other words, even the most obedient Christian can never do more than required. This fancy word that we meet here in paragraph 4, supererogate, means exactly that, to do more than required. Even the most obedient believer cannot do more than God requires. We can never get to a point in our lives where we have somehow paid God back and everything else that we do now for his glory is somehow adding extra brownie points into our account. The believer with the strongest faith in the world is still not anywhere close to being able to do more than what God requires. And indeed, even the most obedient of all Christians fall short in much of what they are bound to actually do. Indeed, how could we ever do more than God requires? It is as we read in the book of Job, chapter 9, verses 2 to 3, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. My brothers and sisters, we will never be able to do more than God requires. And even our most obedient brothers and sisters in the faith still fall short of much that they should do. And so as we consider this paragraph and wonder what point it has in our lives, I think it is a helpful reminder that we are to keep our eyes on Christ and not on the super-Christians. And indeed, we are to keep our eyes on Christ and not on our own flawed obedience. The Lord tells us in Luke 17 and verse 10, When you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants, and we have only done what was our duty. And so as we are engaged in good works, flowing out of our transformed hearts, we are not doing these good works to butter God up, to try and get him to change his opinion of us. We're not doing them in order to try and save ourselves. We're not doing them in order somehow to pay God back for what he has done. Even if we did all the good works that we're to do in this world, we would still fall short. As believers, saved by grace, we are doing our duty. We are responding to the love of God in our lives in obedience. We're responding to Christ's sacrifice for us by living lives of sola deo gloria, and doing everything unto the glory of God. I find this paragraph so incredibly liberating. There will always be members of the Church of Jesus Christ who always make us feel like we have never got out of the shallow end of the paddling pool. And today I'm not saying that we should despise those believers. I'm not saying that we should reject those who have gone further in their faith. But instead I think this paragraph points us to where our focus should always be. Not on super-Christians, not on poor, imperfect, disobedient believers, such are we half the time, but on Christ. On Christ yesterday, today, and forever. Our eyes and our focus must always be on Jesus. Even in our sunniest and best days, we will never come close to doing more than God requires. 
Even when we are absolutely on fire, we will still fall short of much that we are supposed to do. And so, enabled and inspired by the Holy Spirit, we will strive to be zealous for good works. And lifting our eyes onto Jesus, we will do everything to the glory of God. Today we remember that none of us are perfect. None of us have done enough or said enough. None of us will ever be as obedient as we could be. But today, through faith in Christ, confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will certainly bring it to completion at the day of Christ. As always, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. What is the Holy Spirit's involvement in our good works? Question 2. What comfort and certainty does the Holy Spirit's involvement bring? Question 3. What warning comes at the end of paragraph 3? And by what means can we stir up the grace that is in us? Question 4. What does supererogate mean? And question 5. Why is it impossible to do more than God requires? That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn. And until next time, this we confess. (laughs) 